Welcome to episode six of the Primary Pod. I am your host, Brian Shackman, and it's fascinating as we go on this political journey that is the 2020 election, and we focus so much on the New Hampshire primary on this podcast, but we come in and out of the lives of so many different people, whether it be the candidates, the people who work for the candidates, the volunteers of the candidates, the journalists who cover them, or just the people for New Hampshire who have done all of the everything, and they have this incredible knowledge base uh, that is so valuable all the time, but especially for the broader audience in times like this. And I want to welcome in Scott Spradling, who now when he comes on Primary Source on New England Cable News, Monday through Friday, 7 p.m., but not, not to plug it shamelessly. Plug away. We, we call him a political consultant, but he's a, a reformed journalist, and he's done a bunch of different things, and he comes down to visit us from New Hampshire. Or we, we Skype with him and do a, a bunch of different things with Scott. Now, I really want to talk to you today for a couple of – first of all, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. There's two things I want to go. I want to talk about the primary a little bit, but I will first want to, you know, people out there listening, and we've talked to a lot of people who have aspirations for careers, even mm-hmm. college students or grad students. Tell us a little bit about your career, how you got to 2019 and today okay. in, in your career yeah. and where it started. I'll give you the quick 60-second version. So went to Syracuse University, graduated new with house. a degree, new house. One, degree of the, one of the few new house guys <laughs> that I actually like. Hey, thank you. You I guys are all that. so cocky. I know. Terrible, isn't it? Terrible, terrible. So you went um, to new house. So went to new house, graduated in the early 90s with a degree in broadcast journalism with the dream of being on TV news. And I came out to New England off of a whim, basically. Well, you weren't from here. No, I wasn't. Uh, I actually grew up in central New York. My parents both worked at SU. So I was a college parent's kid. So I was on campus all the time, went to Newhouse. Um, The year I graduated, dad got a job and moved to Michigan, and I wasn't going to Michigan with them. So I was sort of a homeless graduate trying to figure out where to work and, and where the jobs were. I came out to New England off of a geography game thinking, if I plant myself in the middle of New England, I've got six states within two hours. That's a bunch of markets. I'm bound to get my first job. So looking for your first TV job. Exactly. Couldn't find anything in TV, so I started in radio. And I went off of the advice of a news, dire- a news uh, writing professor at Syracuse who said, Make your mistakes in radio, learn the job in radio, learn how to deliver news, and then you can get on TV, and it's the same kind of a thing. So bottom line is, that's what I did. I spent three years in radio and then landed a job as as a reporter at WMUR, the ABC. So were you, on the radio, were you just doing like news updates type thing? Or were you going in the field and cutting stories like NPR-wise? Both, both. I would be a weekend anchor of their uh, weekend morning news, and I also did the afternoon news updates, and then I would run around in the evenings and cover everything from Alder manic meetings at City Hall in Manchester to breaking news, fires, crime, ink blotter stuff. And so that bolstered the resume? Because in TV, a lot of people say you need a reel, you need this and that. And so a news director on TV station saw Syracuse and saw that you were in the news business as a serious journalist and they gave you a chance. Yeah. And if you're looking for some advice... For young people that might listen to this, the important thing is you have to start networking before you've got your diploma. You have to start meeting people in the business, local folks that have good ties that you can make an impression on because it's the references that may get you the job. It's not always what you know. It's who you know. And you can get into the doors that way. I've, it's worked, and it works both ways for all of us. I've yeah. gotten jobs that I didn't deserve because of people I knew, <laughs> and I didn't get jobs because I didn't know the right people. And, exactly. and so it's so true, especially now where the, the competitive side of it seems with, with the erosion of print 
and the consolidation, it just seems it's more competitive it uh, for a smaller slice of the pie. Because there's as many people that want to do it, and it seems fewer opportunities right. necessarily. And that's why stuff like podcasting, I think, has gotten such a such a life. Okay, so you go to WMUR in New Hampshire, which mm-hmm. is the beast in New Hampshire. It's the only game in town. That's right. And every four years for the election, they make a boatload of money. That's right. And there's a guy named Carl Cameron, who was the political reporter before me, who uh, was promoted and left and went to the Fox National News down in Washington to be their political reporter. Oh, wow. So I kind of backed into the job of being the political director for WMUR for close to 12 years. They also threw me on the desk, so I did the 5 o'clock news and had a chance to sort of see what was going on in the world at the end of my day, but spent most of my time running around covering campaigns, politics, and issues. Okay, so how old were you when you got that gig? 25. Okay, so... A lot of people would look at that at 25 as a huge stepping stone gig. Or if you did it for 12 years, like you're an anchor, you get to cover politics, and New Hampshire is the center of the universe every four years – why would you stop? So two reasons. One, I have twins and they were very young at the time and I felt like I was disconnected from their development and the day-to-day. So I just felt like the job itself did not provide me the affordability for any kind of a life-work balance. So that was one piece. Second, Brian, honestly, there was a little bit of burnout. When you're running around dealing with that daily deadline, plus the anchoring, plus a weekly political show that I hosted that would run on Sundays, but but have to be recorded and, sure. and done on Fridays. It was always a chaotic week. And, you know, news media is a business with no memory. It's not, hey, that was a great job yesterday. You can coast today. It's, yeah. what do you got today? Yeah, people don't know that enough. Like, literally, it does not matter. Nope. You have to produce every single day or you're irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. And so, so you f- walked away. I did. And I felt the reason I walked away is because I could feel my fatigue level rising. And I was worried that my product was going to suffer because of it and that I was not going to do a service to people who are using me to learn about what's going on. And I didn't want to do that to viewers and to people that were relying on what yeah. I do for a living. You know, that really resonates with me personally. I'm not going to get too far into it, but I, I made a decision or two and I changed it when I moved from New York back to New England, but I made a decision or two when I was at CNBC that was the opposite way. And I will, mm. I regret that. Really? But yeah, because I missed a lot of my children's early childhood. And uh, I think it takes a lot of courage in journalism. What I know, and I think you're hardwired for this, is that we're so ambitious yeah. and we want to make it big. And I thought when I got the morning anchor gig in Hartford at the NBC affiliate, I was like, listen, Matt Lauer got his anchoring gig when he was the same age. Maybe I could get to the Today Show. Sure. And that's how you think in this business. You bet. And so to, to dial it back for reasons that aren't about your career, and I'm not just doing this because you're here, that takes a ton of courage. And oh, I, 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 I actually... You know, I'm wistful when I when I think about it because now, like my oldest is 13 and my youngest is 10, and and those are decisions that you can't change. But here you are, and we'll we'll wrap it up in in, in a minute because here you are, you pivot, right? Yeah. And so just tell people what you do. And that was probably so. If you did it for 12 years, mid 90s, so eight. Okay, so you for you for about 10 plus years, you've been doing the the new iteration yep. of Scott Spradling. That's and, right. And what does that look like? So basically, I am a media consultant that operates in what I describe as the triangle of operations in New Hampshire. The three points of the triangle being media, politics, and business. I describe myself basically as a friend of X, and I try to be a matchmaker. Somebody has a need, I try to fill that need, and oftentimes it, it, it turns off of the relationship. So I have some clients that might need some type of piece of legislation, or they need access to a lawmaker because they need to do something that requires a, a law to be changed or something to be added or subtracted in order to do it. So there's a little bit of client and politics work. Sometimes I'm just working with clients to roll out something exciting and big, and it's traditional 
public relations and earned media. Sometimes it's a little bit of crisis management because somebody's had a problem. But no matter what, the one great thing about being in a small state like New Hampshire, after 15 years in the news media... You know everybody. You know everybody. Right. I'm kind of where's Waldo of New Hampshire when it comes to these different things. I'm on different boards. I volunteer my time in different places, and I have a, a, a really wide variety of clients. Not a huge long list, but I have about a dozen clients I work with on a regular basis that put me in different fields of operation. And so, therefore, I'm always interacting. I'm always managing and trying to improve relationships. So I just matchmake. And oftentimes, it's basically saying, you know what? I know someone who I think can help us. Let's get them on the phone. Let's get in the same room and let's make something happen. And that gives you a good enough living to live a good life in New Hampshire. It does. And did it give you the balance that you needed? It definitely did. The one great thing about what I do now is even though I joke that I traded in one boss for about a dozen bosses, everybody understands what my business model looks like, meaning I am here for you 24-7. You need me, you call me, I pick up the phone and we take care of business. But I also have to manage my time and sometimes they want to meet with me on date and X such. No, I can't do it then. Let's do it this time. But I can build in the windows that I need to catch a kid's 4 p.m. high school soccer game that's happening or something happening on a college campus that I need to slip out for for the day. I have the flexibility I just didn't have before. The last thing I want to talk about, because you come on primary shorts all the time to talk about politics, especially as it relates to the primary, because you covered, what, three cycles? Yeah, uh, three cycles in TV and then a fourth cycle in radio. So you've covered four presidential races and primaries in New Hampshire. Just give a quick perspective of of where we are relative to some of those before. Like, you know, Cory Booker keeps telling me, you know, so-and-so was behind by this much at this Mm. point. So I still have a chance. And I want to know if, if some of those feelings are actually accurate or does history have to repeat itself? And just tell me now on this show... What you think is going to happen on February? I think it'll be 11th. On the 11th, sir. So what I see happening right now is if Cory Booker is saying he still has a chance because the people of New Hampshire for the New Hampshire presidential primary really haven't figured it out and formulated it, he's absolutely right. We are in still the tire-kicking stage. We are still, 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 because New Hampshire voters know that they don't have to make a decision until February 11th of 2020. So. They're not gonna. They'll have trends. That's why the polls can be very informative in terms of a snapshot of a trend of what might be happening. So in the context of this conversation, the trends right now are all about Pete Buttigieg. He's doing very well. He's the hot topic. He's the name on everybody's lips, but he's not necessarily the guy that's going to lead across the finish line because there are plenty more news cycles, plenty more conversations, plenty of good impressions to be made and not so good impressions to be made. New Hampshire voters know they can wait till the last second before they have to cast that ballot on that specific day. So they're not necessarily going to decide until the very, very end. Mm. We have seen that happen before in in cases big and small. Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in 2008, which was my last coverage cycle for a presidential primary, is the perfect example of late breaking because Barack Obama shocked the world in one Iowa. Then he came into New Hampshire with a full head of steam and the polls suddenly showed that he had a bounce. He had a very big outside of the margin lead. And what happened was there was a mad scramble, some incidents that I think happened in that final week that closed the gap and showed that the populace, if they really truly believed that Barack Obama was the guy on Monday before the presidential primary, eight days to go, coming right out of Iowa, and then all of a sudden Hillary just barely nipped him by a few thousand votes eight days later, it shows the fluidity of the New Hampshire electorate. And it's true. So you really think that something unforeseen could be the result in New Hampshire. Yes. So do you have an opinion on what that result could be? So I think impeachment right now, that impeachment process could be something that affects a lot of people. And 
Here's how in I think it could happen. In terms of the senators maybe being stuck in Washington? Sure. Uh, so you've got pragmatic problems like that, but you also have the rolling commentary of what's going on, what it means, what the outcomes are going to look like, and how the candidates bring that into the fold of the conversation. The outcomes in the process around the impeachment could very much impact outcomes on the campaign trail because voters are having to pay attention to multiple big things going on all at the same time, and they have to mesh in in some way, shape, or form. It could be meshed in in terms of shifting the conversation post-impeachment or during impeachment around maybe electability, maybe the conversations around climate change and health care and some of the other high-profile issue-based priorities that everybody's talking about that have been cited, poll after poll after poll. Maybe that shifts, and maybe now we're talking about pure, basic electability, Who can beat this guy? Not necessarily who's got the best ideas, Mm -hmm. but who can win in November of 2020, and maybe that becomes a factor, which is a huge X factor in the entire conversation. See, you know he knows politics because he gave a great answer without giving the exact answer, which was putting him (laughs) on the spot anyway. Uh, Put me on the spot. (laughs) Scott Spradley, no, you're good. We'll have you back here. We appreciate the time here on this edition of the Primary Pod. 